Our Father, I think often about Jesus' ministry and His exposure of Himself, the revelation of who He was, and how some were drawn and attracted to that, and a great many fled away from it. And in John chapter 6, the, the crowds depart. And Jesus turned to his twelve and said, Will you leave also? And Peter, the beloved disciple, so wisely said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. And he echoes what we think in our difficulties and in our trials and our burdens. It's tempting at times to leave, to flee. The pressures of the world are great. The injustice and the harshness, the oppression, and just regular old run-of-the-mill suffering. It's hard. But where would we go? Who else has words of life like this blessed Savior? And so we entrust ourselves to Him, even as we have just sung To him we lift our eyes. He is our glory. He is our prize. So we adore him and behold him and look at the one who is ever true. We turn our eyes to him. Might that be true as we worship this morning, as we think about being steadfast in our suffering. Would you help us to see the one who will hold us? When we suffer and will at the last day take us home. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Christian University professor Mark Talbot tells his story of suffering in his book, When the Stars Disappear. When I was 17, I fell about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing, breaking my back and becoming partially paralyzed from the waist down. I spent six months in hospitals. Initially, I had no feeling or movement in my legs, no bowel or bladder control. I dropped from 200 pounds to 145 because I was so nauseated I could not eat. Once my back had stabilized a little and regained some leg movement, the doctors tried to help me regain even more by having me crawl to breakfast every morning. I am now in my 60s and the consequences of my fall continue to multiply. I have to worry about things most people never even think about. In the last two decades, I have had sleep-robbing leg spasms. And in the last few years, my inability to do much walking has depleted my bone density in my hips to the point where when I fell a couple of years ago, I broke my hip and became wheelchair-bound. Other complications have hindered my traveling and some have put at times my life at risk. I have seasons of profoundly disoriented perplexity when night after night sleep fled from me because I was utterly unable to understand how God and His goodness could have been playing any part in what was happening to me. I have experienced hurts so deep and disruptive that they have dominated my consciousness, making me feel I could lose the Christian faith that has oriented me almost my whole life. 
Like one suffering psalmist, I have felt like a little owl alone in the wilderness, feeling my days were disappearing like smoke, and my heart was withering away like parched grass. Oh, you may not have fallen 50 feet from a swing, but you know what he's talking about, don't you? You know that despair and that longing. While Talbot's suffering is unique to him, his experience of suffering is not unique. It is normative. I have... I started counting this week and I gave up. I have dozens of books in my library on the topic of suffering and virtually uncountable numbers more of articles, blog posts, journal articles on trials and suffering. And scripture is replete with its emphasis on suffering and realistic about all of the different forms of suffering that we will experience. Illness, accident, weakness, aging and slow deaths, opposition, slander, personal attacks, persecution, broken relationships, and far more. Consider just a few examples from scripture's warnings and preparations for suffering. From Job, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Listen to what the psalm, what Job says in Job 30. Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire. And I've become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride. You dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of the meeting for all living. The psalmist. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Another psalmist. Your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors and I am overcome in fact, that word afflicted in various forms appears more than 50 times in the, in the Psalms alone. It's just permeated with this idea of suffering. Again, that same Psalm, I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. It says, Jesus, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. A little later in the upper room, that same Scenario in which he said those words, he said this, these things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation. Through many tribulations, Acts 14, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul, let no one be disturbed by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Again, the end of his life, Paul writes, Now you followed my teaching conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. 
such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, and what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And just read the end of Hebrews chapter 11 for a great example of that. Peter, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Life on this side of heaven is hard. And scripture does not hide that reality. Scripture never affirms the removal of suffering until we get to glory. And there are enough stories of suffering and persecution and enough affirmations of trouble in the Bible that it might be tempting for the believer to say, life is not quite as good as it seems like it should be when we follow God. It's hard. Unbearably hard. And in reading passages like Romans chapter 5, which I just realized I forgot to read when I said that I would read it. And we get to verses 1 and 2, we read this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope and the glory of God. And it just, we read those verses and we go, yeah, that's, that's justification. That's what's coming. That's what's ahead. But it sure doesn't feel like my experience today. And it's tempting to say to the Apostle Paul in rebuttal, well, that's okay for you to say, but we're here in Rome and we're suffering, Paul. And you don't know what our lives are like. And it's hard. And it's almost... It's almost as if Paul is anticipating that objection. Because in verses 3 to 5, that's the very thing he answers. Notice. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. End of verse 2. And not only this. But we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance proven character. And proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In these verses, Paul is reminding us not only of the hope of justification and what will come then, but what justification and our suffering is producing now. And what we will learn in these three verses this morning is this. Because you are justified, exalt and be steadfast in your troubles. Because you're justified, exalt and be steadfast in your troubles. When we suffer, brothers, the temptation is to walk away from Christ. The temptation is to give up on the faith. The temptation is to become apathetic, hardened, even bitter about life and about our position in Christ. But Paul says there's reason to be hopeful if we are suffering today. And I dare say that all of us are suffering in some way today. There's some difficulty, some trouble, some weight, some burden that is perplexing you, making life difficult for you, weighing down on you. And Paul says... That it is a good thing that it is working in you and to persevere in it.
And not only to persevere, but notice what he says at the beginning, to exult in our tribulation. And so in these few brief verses, what he will do is he will give us four reasons to exult in our trials. Four four products of the faith of our trials when we respond in godly ways. He doesn't promise the removal of the trial. He doesn't promise the the removal of the weight and the burden and the difficulty and the oppression. But he does promise that it will work something good in you if you persist with him. Let us notice the first of these products. It's given to us in verse 3. Be steadfast in trouble because trouble produces perseverance. Again, Paul has laid out for us in verses 1 and 2 the the blessing of our justification. He's just spent three chapters, the first three chapters of this letter, essentially the first three chapters, telling us about um, our state with Christ and our sinfulness and our depravity and what that produces in us. And then near the end of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, he lays out for us this blessed gift of justification that comes through Christ alone and the hope and the security and the confidence of it, the fact that we can do nothing for it, but that he has done everything to accomplish that for us. And now he begins unfolding from this point forward, really through the end of the book, the blessings that flow from that justification. And so he says in verse 2, because of this justification, he says, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt. That word exalt has the idea of we boast, we, we brag, we, we take pride in the confident expectation of what we have for an eternal future. It's the natural kind of response for the believer in Jesus Christ. What else would you do when you've been given this magnanimous gift for all of eternity? We exalt in it. We brag about it. We delight in it. We exalt in it. And now, in verse 3, Paul takes that idea of exalting and he connects it to something really unexpected. And not only this... Not only the exaltation of the hope that we have in the future, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, we might say, now. It's not just that we are bragging and looking forward and being steadfast in and anticipating what's coming then, but we exalt in what God is doing in our trials today. Not just looking forward, but looking down and in now. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that's an astounding statement to me. It's astounding because it is contrary to everything we think about trials and persecution and suffering. The natural response of the flesh, the natural response is always to say, what? Get me out of here. I don't want this. This is wrong. I shouldn't be here. Stop it. And Paul says, we exalt. It's one thing to say, be steadfast. That's our, that's our emphasis this year. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't leave Christ. Don't leave the gospel. Don't leave the scriptures. Don't leave prayer. Don't leave him who has saved you. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. It's not vanity. Stay, remain, persist. 
It's one thing to say, you're suffering, stick it out, cut it out, persist. That's not what he says. He says, we exult. We rejoice. This is way more than just hang on. And it's one of Paul's ways to say again that there is joy to be found in our sufferings. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers. When you encounter various trials. So the, the, the kinds of trials are various. They come from all kinds of different directions. All kinds of different places. All kinds of different peoples. And whatever the trial is that comes to you. All the time. He says consider it joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. That you may be perfect. And complete. Lacking nothing. Because of this verse. And we're looking at here, verse 3. When we say, be steadfast in your trials, we're not just saying, gut it out. We're saying, be joyful in your trials. Be intentional in cultivating gratitude, delight, confidence, peace in Christ in the midst of your suffering. How in the world... Can Paul say that? When you're suffering and weeping and the world is heavy, how can he say that? Well, he says that in multiple different ways, but he says that in part because boasting in trials is the consistent theme of the scriptures. Notice verse 3, he says, we exalt in our tribulations. Those tribulations... Notice that it's a plural. It's not just one. It's multiple. It's coming at you. Sometimes sequentially, you know, you go from one to another, to another, to another, to another. I've heard someone say one time on one occasion, I just can't seem to catch a break. Actually, it wasn't one person one time. I've heard that a lot of times. I've said it a lot of times. Just can't seem to catch a break. Why, 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 why do we say that? Because... It's just this repetition of hard things over and over and over and over and over. And it's not just that they come sequentially, but sometimes they come cumulatively, right? They come all at once. The word tribulations not just doesn't just refer to the plurality of the difficulties, but it refers to pressures, to hardships, to sufferings, to trouble. The scripture points to the fact that sometimes those tribulations come to believers because of our identity with Christ. So we claim Christ, we follow after Christ, we pursue Christ, and because they hated him, what? They hate us. And we experience all of the oppression, the difficulty, the suffering that comes from being identified with Jesus Christ. But the scripture also points to the reality that sometimes there's just... There's just brokenness and fallenness that happens in this world unrelated to whether or not we're in Christ. Because even unbelievers get cancer. Even unbelievers have car accidents. Even unbelievers have broken and difficult relationships. It's just what happens living in this world. 
And the word tribulations can refer to either of those dynamics, the things that happen to us in Christ because of Christ or the things that just come from living in a fallen world, from living post-Genesis 3. And I think really that's what Paul is probably talking about here. It's just a broken, weak world where hard things happen. And what the scriptures in the New Testament affirm repeatedly is the reality of this kind of suffering and pressures and troubles. John chapter 16, Jesus, tribulation can be, uh, tribulation and trouble can be expected. And we see that multiple times. You heard it in a number of the passages I read earlier. We understand as well from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that God has ordained some of these troubles. Did you hear that? 1 Thessalonians 3, let no one be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Who destined it? Well, the only one who can destine anything, and that's God. He has designed it, orchestrated it, sovereignly planned it for us. And in the midst of those things, he also is the one who provides comfort and encouragement to us in our troubles. And brothers, all of these things are a reminder to us that when we set our hearts on the world and its false promises, it will be difficult to exult in tribulations. If you say, this is my best world now, this is my best life now, you are bound to be disappointed. But when you look beyond this world to another world and to another Savior and to another one who is the only one who is worth worshiping, Then you can endure and then you can persist and you can exalt. Paul can also say this because boasting in our trials is a way of boasting in God. Notice the context in which Paul uses this word exalt. It's it's a fairly common word in the New Testament, but he uses it three times in Romans chapter 5 alone. Notice verse 2. We've already drawn attention to this. But notice it again. End of verse 2. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. What's he doing? He's boasting in God. He's drawing his attention to God. He's saying, in the middle of this, in the middle of this justification, in, the, in, in, in my contemplation of what is coming to me from, from my justification, it's worth boasting in God. It's just the natural response of the heart to say, I've got to boast in him and I will boast in him. Just draw your attention down now to verse 11. And not only this, after talking about what God has done to save us when we were his enemies, and not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We boast in God. And we find that same kind of idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 and 31. So when Paul talks about boasting, he's talking about finding our joy in God and in His sufficient provision for us. And we might say it this way. When we boast in our trials, we are boasting in our weaknesses. And to boast in our weaknesses is like saying... I agree that I cannot endure this or do this, but God is working in me and through me, and He in me is sufficient. And isn't that Paul's very own testimony? You know, Paul, Paul's not speaking in a vacuum. Paul's not saying, um, here's what you need to do, and by the way, I've never experienced any of this stuff. No, this 
This was his reality. First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 11. I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. How, how many times did he have to be beaten for him to say, I can't even remember how many times. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, day, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles. The Jews hate me and the Gentiles hate me. Well, where do you go then? Dangers in the city. Leave the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger, thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He knows. And he says, I'm going to boast in the Lord. Friends, when we boast in our trials... We are boasting in the God who is sovereignly behind the trials, designing them and strengthening us in them. It's when we go through the trials that we learn the experience of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, immediately following that section I just read. When he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. If I can be weak, only then can I experience God's power. So I want weakness. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Without the tribulation, without the suffering, Paul could only have known what he could do. And with the tribulation and suffering, now he learns what God can do. And so he says... I'm content. It's hard to live there. 61 years old, been a pastor a long time. Came out of seminary, Kent, with all kinds of ideals. (laughs) Didn't quite work the way I thought it would work in every way. There have been things I'd never thought that I'd have to do. Sufferings, difficulties, pressures, weights, an exposure of my own heart and the insidious, relentless struggling of the flesh. And those are good things because now we can all learn together the power of Christ in us. That's what Paul is saying. It's only when We know these tribulations that we know the power of God. Notice what else Paul says here about why he can say that. And that is that our boasting is not for 
our tribulations. Our boasting is in our tribulations. Some of our tribulations are the result of sin, either ours or others. And we don't have to boast. We don't have to brag. We don't have to delight in the sin. He's not saying that. But he is saying that when you are experiencing the ramifications of that sin in your life, you can boast about what God is doing in you. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, isn't it? In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say in, he doesn't say for everything, give thanks. So there are some things we shouldn't give thanks for. But he says in everything, in every circumstance, in every trial, in every weight, in every burden, you find a means to give thanks. And that being said, are you looking for reasons to be grateful in your hardships? You know, even when you're not angry over what you're suffering, even when you're not hostile against it, even when you're not embittered, it's easy to overlook being thankful. And there have been seasons in my life where I've said, you know, the Lord has really done these great and good things in my life because of this particular circumstance, but I, I haven't paused to give thanks. And I've said, I need to give thanks for this thing. Have you given thanks? Have you thanked him for what he has done in that trial? Notice one other thing about why Paul can say what he says about exalting. It is because boasting in trials is a pathway to perseverance. It's a pathway to steadfastness. Notice what Paul says, verse 3. We exalt in our tribulations... Knowing that it is because we know something. (laughs) Remember that little game that your kids used to play? Maybe they still play it at your house. I know something you don't know. Right? We know something the world doesn't know. And that is the trials aren't the end. The suffering's not the end. The difficulty isn't the end. Christ is the end. Our joy is the end. And we'll get there in a minute. Eternity is the end. And because of that, we stand knowing that, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. That word perseverance is the same one that's used by the Apostle James in chapter 1. We just read it a moment ago. And it refers to spiritual fortitude. It has a sense of bearing up even while under a crushingly heavy load. It's, it's stick-to-itiveness under a heavy trial. It's carrying a burden and a weight and enduring. You know that little commercial with the cute little bunny? They still have a commercial on TV, the Energizer Bunny, right? He's, is it a pink bunny or something? And he's playing the drums and he, he just keeps on going, right? Well, it's all cute and everything. He just keeps on going. But that's not what Paul's talking about here because that bunny is facing no oppression, no difficulty, no burden, no weight. He doesn't have an 18-wheeler semi behind it that he's trying to pull on two uh, C, C batteries. No, no, no. What Paul's talking about here is not, you know, blissfully going along with no weight and pressure. No, he says you're moving forward in spite of the pressure that's on you. That's perseverance. That's steadfastness. The persevering person is brave 
and steadfast. That's our theme for the year. And we're going to keep coming back to it over and over because we are prone to non-steadfastness. At least my heart is. I want you to think carefully about this. How do you gain steadfastness? How do you cultivate perseverance? No marathoner ever cultivated an ability to run an you know, they are almost doing, they're, they're just like half a minute away from a sub-two-hour marathon. That's astounding. Nobody ever trained for that by sitting on the couch. No weightlifter ever developed perseverance by staying home from the gym. And spiritual endurance is not gained by reading a book or listening to a sermon only. Perseverance and strength and endurance are only the result of enduring in tribulation. You've got to go through tribulation to gain perseverance, to withstand in tribulation. You have to go through the trial. Think about Gerald Sitzer, who was a professor, I believe, at the time at Columbia University in South Carolina. And he was driving, if I remember the incident correctly, he was driving in the mountains on vacation with his family. His mother-in-law was with him. He came around a curve and a drunk driver was there to meet him head on. His mother, his, his mother, his mother, or excuse me, his mother-in-law, his wife and his daughter all died in that accident. And he's written a book about it. Um, a Grief Disguised, I think is the title. And one line I've never forgotten in that book. And he said, in the aftermath of that, I think it was the week after, maybe even before the funeral, he said, I realized I could spend my life trying to run from the trial or I could turn around, run, uh, uh, spend my lifetime running away from the grief or I could turn around and face it and go through it headlong. And that's what he did. And brothers, we are spending a lot of time trying to get away from our trials. And Jesus says we need to face them and walk through them and see how he can sustain us in them. John Stott has rightly said we would not learn endurance without suffering because without suffering there would be nothing to endure. So how can Paul say we exalt in our tribulations? Because tribulation is the only means to perseverance. Remove tribulation and you remove the ability to develop strength, character, and an ability to exalt in God. There's a second reason to exalt in our tribulations. It's given to us in verse 4. Be steadfast in trouble because perseverance produces character. Not only do tribulations produce perseverance, but Paul says that perseverance produces character. Notice what he says. Verse 4, and perseverance, proven character. Proven character refers to a concept of approval, right? It's, it's, uh, and you've heard, you've heard of this in the ancient times. They would, take a, they would take a piece of metal and they would apply heat to it and determine whether or not it was genuine gold or genuine silver or genuine other precious kind of metal. And the heat, which is causing tribulation and pressure on that, on that piece of metal reveals what that metal is, whether or not it's genuine. And Paul says that's what happens to us. When we are in trials 
and we persevere in those trials, it demonstrates the validity of our character in Christ. It demonstrates, aha, that person's in Christ. For how else would they endure such difficulty, such trial? It authenticates what we say we believe. So think about the Macedonians, Second, Second Corinthians chapter 8. In great perseverance and affliction, they begged Paul, let us give to the Jerusalem church. He says, wait a minute, you shouldn't give. You're, you're poverty stricken yourselves. You hardly know where your next meal is coming from. Paul, you've got to take our money. Who does that? Followers of Christ. It was proven. Timothy proved his effectiveness and ability and zeal and ministry as he served alongside the Apostle Paul. You find this all throughout the scriptures that when people are being when people are being cleansed by the fires of persecution and tribulation and trouble, they're demonstrating their character in Christ. How does it do that? How does perseverance produce character? Well, when someone endures a trial, or when someone observe, uh, endures one trial after another with relentlessness and persistence. It's like that piece of metal being put under a flame. And that piece of metal put under the flame doesn't just say, okay, this is really gold, but what else happens? As the gold melts, it separates the gold from the not gold, the genuine from the dross. And the same thing happens to us in our spiritual lives when we are in Christ, when we're doing what we should be doing and persisting with him and following after him. When that heat and pressure is turned up in our lives, the dross of our lives, the dross of our spiritual lives gets removed. That's one of the benefits of our suffering is Jesus exposes our hearts and says, let me take that from you by this trial. And we stop clinging to the things that we want so dearly that are an impediment to us walking with Christ. George Whitfield wrote about his sufferings. It is good for me that I have been supplanted, despised, censured, maligned, judged by and separated from my nearest friends. By this, I have found the faithfulness of him who is the friend of friends And to be content that he to whom all hearts are now open and now sees the uprightness of my intentions to all mankind. His trials produced an authentic character and godly character. There's a third reason to be steadfast and exalt in our tribulations. It's given at the end of verse 4 through verse 5. Be steadfast in trouble. Because character produces hope. Perseverance, verse 4, produces proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope is not just, you know, I sure hope that my package that I ordered yesterday from Amazon shows up today and not tomorrow. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something that is genuine, something that is confident, something that is a certainty and a surety. When Paul speaks of hope, it's the result of proven. That's the, the result of proven character. He means that when we go through trials and we endure. We prove that we have the character of one who is a follower of Jesus Christ and a genuine faith. And that because we have that genuine faith, 
The reality of our hope, our confidence in heaven is sure and secure. He's not saying that we're more confident in heaven and eternity because we are trusting ourselves. He is saying we are more confident of heaven because as we look at this earth, our hands have been loosed from the things of this earth and we can say, I don't want this stuff. I only want Jesus. And where are we going to find Jesus Christ in heaven? And so as we are loosed from the things of this earth, it it gives us confidence in eternity because it again, it, it affirms the reality of whose we are and what we are. Notice that Paul also says in verse 5 that this hope does not disappoint. He means that it's not shameful. No one who follows God will ever experience the shame of following a false God. Hope in God never ends up being different than what was promised. Everything that God promises to give you, He will give you. There's no shame at the end. Oops. Yeah, I wasn't able to pull that one off. No. God has promised. It's sure. His promises always yield the anticipated outcome. I don't know about you, but my wishes and dreams often have ended up very different than I anticipated. But that is never true of God's promises and our hope in Him. He will not disappoint you. He will not disappoint you. And with this sentence, hope does not disappoint. Paul finishes where he began. You notice that? End of verse 2. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And he's thinking, ah, they might not be buying into that. Because they're suffering. How can I turn that to help them understand? And so he addresses the reality of their suffering, their difficulty, their trials. And he brings them full circle back to hope in God. We exalt in our tribulations. Because they produce hope. And that makes the point that exalting in our tribulations is no different than exalting in God. When I say I'm exalting in what God is doing in my tribulation, it is a way of saying I delight in God more than anything else in this world. Paul will say in chapter 8, thinking about the work of the Spirit, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 28, and you know this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And we delight in that. And delighting in that, we delight in God. Does God really produce hope in trials? Listen to the journal entry of one Henry Martin. Henry Martin was a missionary to India and Arabia in the early 1800s. When he left England in 1806, he left behind his fiancée Lydia Greenfell, whom he would never see again. He would die at the age of 31. 
Two months after arriving in Calcutta, one of the missionaries there preached against him and his theology, quote, calling his teaching inconsistent, extravagant, and absurd. He accused him of seeking only to gratify self-sufficiency, pride, and uncharitableness. And yet, Martin persisted. Over the next six years, Martin would translate the New Testament into Hindustani, Persian, and Arabic. How could he do that? Listen to what he wrote in his journal. In the multitude of my troubled thoughts, I still saw that there is a strong consolation in the hope set before us. Let man do their worst. Let me be torn to pieces and my dear Lydia torn from me. Or let me labor for 50 years amidst scorn and never seeing one soul converted. Still, it shall not be worse for my soul in eternity, nor worse for it in time now. Though the heathen rage and the English people imagine a vain thing, the Lord Jesus who controls all events, is my friend, my master, my God, my all. And tribulations of Martin's experience produced endurance. Endurance produced proven character and proven character, confident hope. This is what God does in all of his people. Your trials are not for your destruction. Job felt that way. That's what we read earlier in Job 30. You're you're against me. You want to do me in. He's not against you. He's working for you in the midst of your trials, for your maturation, for your perfection, to give you a confident joy in your final end and to remind you that this earth is not the end, but eternity is. How is it that hope is not disappointing and how do hope, how do trials confidently produce hope? Here's the final reason for our exaltation and our tribula- in our tribulations and trials. Number four, be steadfast in trouble because you have the love of God. Hope, he says, does not disappoint. Verse five, because this is why hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been dribbled out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Is that what it says? The hope of God, excuse me, the love of God has been poured out. Poured out is a word that means it's been supplied freely. It's a word that refers to lavishness. It means that God's been abundant in pouring out His love. It's not... It's not like he's got a little dropper in heaven. It's like, drip, drip. Oh, that's enough for Terry. He doesn't need any more. <laughs> no, no, no. It's he's in heaven and he's saying, how much can I pour out on him? And it is not just that he's given it to us. It's not just that God has given us love. He has given us love. But it's far more than that as well. It's this lavishness, this pouring out. And notice that it is in the context of the troubles that the love is poured out. Dare we even say it this way? You cannot know the love of God in all of its fullness until you have suffered, even suffered deeply. That's when you will know 
the love of God. And notice this as well. It has been poured out not on us, but within our hearts, internally, inside of us. It's not just something external, but it's inside of us. And and how is it that God pours out his love in us? How are you possessed by Christ? Through the indwelling of the spirit of Christ. So you know the love of Christ through the spirit of Christ that indwells you. You know the love of Christ inside of you because the spirit of Christ is inside of you. Governing you, sealing you for the day of redemption, indwelling you, empowering you, equipping you. Have you noticed something else about this? Hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out. The book of Romans is just this magnanimous, tremendous, astounding, beautiful, magnificent gift of a book to us. It's really a remarkable book. And in in this massive theology of God's work and salvation, it's interesting to notice that verse 5 is the very first time in this book that we see the love of God. We've seen the wrath of God. That's chapters 1 to 3, but now he uses the love of God. And do you notice something else about this text? Therefore, verse 1, having been justified by, what's the word? Faith. We exalt, verse 2, in the, what's the word? Hope of God. And verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God. Faith. Hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul is reminding us that in our justification. And in our trials and in our suffering. We have everything we need. And God has provided for us love to see us through. I was thinking about Mark chapter 4 this week. I've doing, been doing some reading in the Gospels recently. And was struck again by Mark chapter 4. You, you know the passage well. Jesus has been rejected by the Pharisees. That's the beginning of chapter 4. He starts withholding his revelation of the kingdom plan from them while teaching the disciples by beginning his parable teaching ministry. That's the middle of chapter four. And the end of chapter four, evening comes and he says to the disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took along with them in the boat. They took him, Jesus, along with them in the boat, just as he was. Interesting. Jesus says, let's go to the other side and they take him. What does that mean? It means... He's, he's not the fisherman. They are. He's not the one who owns the boat. They have the boat. They're the ones that are trustworthy. They know how to navigate the sea. Come on, Jesus. Get in the boat. We'll take you. And there arose, verse 37, a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. 
And here are these guys. They're taking Jesus. We'll get you to the other side. Jesus says, oh yeah, let me show you something. Verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, can't you help us bail? (laughs) No, that's not what he said. What did they say? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? We're dying here. Literally, we're going down. We know you can't do anything about it is the implication. But it'd be nice to know you at least care. And you're trying to do something. And he got up and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Listen, it's not just that he stopped, but I mean, everything. They went from raging hurricane force winds to dead calm like that. And he turns around, he says, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid, (laughs) not of the sea, but of Jesus. And they said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and sea obey him. Who is it? I'll tell you. He's the one that is not only sovereign over the wind and sea, but he's sovereign over your heart. And he'll see you through. His calming of the storm was his way of saying, yeah, I care. I love you. It is in the trial. It is in the burden that we begin to see the love of Christ in ways that we never would otherwise. I don't know anybody that says, I just love my trials. Give me more. But I know a great many people who have watched some really dark days. Who have said, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because I've experienced the provision of God in ways that I would have never seen otherwise. Wouldn't want anybody else to go through what I went through. But I'm so glad I did. Because God has been faithful. Friend, if you've been justified this morning, if you have been declared righteous by God through your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have this love that Paul has talked about. You're safe. You're secure. And you cannot be removed even by the greatest of trials. Give thanks this morning. Don't turn away and run when the trials come. You stay steadfast with Christ. Because he has blessed you through justification. If you have not been justified. And by that I mean if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not your savior. And you are not his friend. If you do not believe in him. If you have not repented from your sin. And not turned to him in faith. Then my friend. Everything we've talked about this morning. You don't have. You don't have exaltation. You don't have perseverance. You don't have character. You don't have hope. You don't have love. You don't have anything. You only get that by being in Christ. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I would, I would commend to you what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 1, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was crucified, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven. He has wiped away the debt of our sin and he has become the one for whom we might and should live.
And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Friend, if you don't believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. It's your only hope. Your only hope is not to get out of the trial and not to get out of the burden and not to get out of the difficulty. It is to get into Christ and be had by him so you might live for him. If you don't believe, would you believe? Guida Bray was the author of the Belgic Confession of Faith. He was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who was imprisoned for his faith and then sentenced to death. In April of 1567, he wrote to his wife while in prison to encourage her in her faith while he himself was waiting for his execution and he would be executed. Some of what he said to her, it's a very lengthy letter. If you can find it, it is well worth reading. But some of what he said to her is this. And I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to join me in thanking God for what he has done. For he does nothing that is not just and very equitable. And you should believe that it is for my good and for my peace. You have seen and felt my labors, cross, persecutions and afflictions which I have endured and have even had a part in them when you accompanied me in my travels during the time of my exile. And now my God has extended his hand to receive me into his blessed kingdom. I shall see it before you. And when it shall please the Lord, you will follow me. The separation is not for all time. The Lord will receive you also to join us together in our head, Jesus Christ. This is not the place of our habitation. That is in heaven. This is only the place of our journey. That is why we long for our true country, which is in heaven. We desire to be received in the home of our heavenly father, to see our brother, head and savior, Jesus Christ, to see the noble company of the patriarchs, prophets, apostles and many thousands of martyrs into whose company I hope to be received when I have finished the course of my work, which I have received from my Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you, my dearly beloved, to console yourself with meditation on these things. Consider the honor that God has done you in giving you a husband who is not only a minister of the Son of God, but so esteemed of God that he allowed him to have the crown of martyrs. That's astounding. It is an honor the like of which God has never even given to the angels. I am happy. My heart is light and it lacks nothing in my afflictions. I am so filled with the abundance of the richness of my God that I have enough for me and all those whom I can speak. So I pray my God that he will continue his kindness to me, his prisoner. And the one in whom I have trusted will do it. For I have found by experience that he will never leave those who have trusted him. Such things have happened, my dear sister and faithful wife. I implore you to find comfort from the Lord in your afflictions 
and to place your troubles with him. He is the husband of a believing widow and the father of poor orphans. He will never leave you of that, I can assure you. Conduct yourself as a Christian woman, faithful in the fear of God as you always have been, honoring by your good life and conversation the doctrine of the Son of God, which your husband has preached. Farewell, Catherine, my dearly beloved. I pray, my God, that he will comfort you and give you contentment in his goodwill. Here's a man who exemplified this passage. He had great trouble in this world. And he boasted in God. And he grew in steadfastness. Demonstrated his character. Clung to the certain hope of heaven. And was not disappointed by the love of God that had been poured out within his heart. Debray's troubles were obviously not insignificant. And your troubles aren't insignificant either. But your trouble is not the end of the story. The end of the story is what God is working in you in your trouble. And the security and the love of God that you have in eternity. Be steadfast. I cannot promise you a trouble-free life. But be steadfast. Continue in the faith. As you suffer. And he will be faithful. Our Father, we thank you. Dare we say it? How can we not say it? We thank you for our troubles. We thank you for the burdens and the pressures and the weights. We do not diminish their harshness. But we magnify the magnificence of the Savior who is seeing us through these trials. We do not know what lies ahead in 2024. Some of us in this room may be in heaven before the end of this year. Some of us, all of us, will suffer. Some of us exceedingly greatly. Would you give us steadfastness, perseverance to exalt and delight in the Savior who will see us through all of our troubles and take us to glory. In his name we pray. Amen.